You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church. We're located in the Ballston neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us on the web at cumcballston dot There you can learn more about our congregation, where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Today's reading is Matthew 14, 13 through 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. When he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, for keen observers, if you've been in worship in the month of October, you may have noticed we've heard this scripture before. This section of Matthew's gospel has been our sermon text for three weeks now. The story of the feeding of thousands is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Now, we could have heard a different version of this story each week, four weeks in October that we'll be preaching on this, four different accounts. But it's too easy to get into the details of comparing and contrasting. Why did Luke say there were seven loaves of bread instead of five? And so instead, this month, we have been hearing Matthew's account There's an ancient rabbinic tradition that I first heard from Rob Bell that says that scripture is like a gem with 70 faces. Each time you turn the gem, it reflects the light differently, and it gives you a new beauty you've not seen before. And so we turn the text again and again because we keep seeing things we missed the time before. Our worship guide this month tells you the focus of each sermon and the way that we are turning this text. The first week, we celebrated World Communion Sunday, and we imagined feeding the multitudes. Last week, Pastor John reminded us of the power of gratitude to help us imagine unlimited possibility. And today, we turn this text again, and we discover the beauty as we imagine God's world transformed. As we turn the gem of this text, I want us to step back a little bit and notice the setting, the context in which we find this miraculous feast is set right after another feast. If we go back to the very beginning of chapter 14, we see that there is a feast held in King Herod's palace. This is not the same King Herod who forced Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus to flee Egypt. That was Herod the Great. 
This King Herod is the son of Herod the Great. So the beginning of this chapter, we see a party in honor of Herod's birthday. While the king and his guests celebrated in the palace, the text also tells us that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was languishing in Herod's prison. You see, John the Baptist had uh, aroused the king's fury by questioning the potential romantic relationship with Herodias, the wife of his brother. So Herod's response to this accusation was to throw John the Baptist in jail. So at Herod's birthday party, there is a lavish feast with abundant food and plenty of wine and the entertainment of beautiful dancers. One of these dancers was his stepdaughter. Her dancing so impressed King Herod that he offered her anything she asked. She followed her mother's prompting, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. This would have conveniently silenced any accusations of scandalous behavior happening in their family. So John the Baptist was executed. His body was buried by the disciples, and the disciples went to tell Jesus about the death of his cousin. And that is where our scripture begins today. When Jesus heard what had happened, when he heard about the death of his cousin at the hands of King Herod, when he had heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Imagine that you're Jesus in this situation. You're processing the grief that comes in waves after the death of someone you love. We know that Jesus was fully human in addition to being fully divine. And as a fully human being, when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Imagine the grief Jesus has now at the death of his cousin, the one who prepared the way for his ministry, who proclaimed the need for repentance and baptism to hear the message that, God, that Jesus embodied. The murder of his beloved cousin would be cause for deep grief, and it motivated him to withdraw. Jesus finds a boat so he can go to a solitary place. But our scripture text tells us that when the crowds heard that Jesus was drawing to this remote place, they followed him on foot. If I were in Jesus' sandals, the last thing I would want in this situation is for people to invade my quiet solitude and grief with demands for help. But this gospel text tells us that when Jesus discovered the crowds had sought him out, hoping that they would continue healing their sick, he had compassion on them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Even in his grief, Jesus treats needs from other people as holy. He treats the needs of those people on the seashore as holy, and he treats our needs as holy. 
He had compassion on them and healed their sick, and he has compassion on us. He had compassion on them. I believe that is the first of the three miracles in this text. Because as a fully human being, to be embodied in the midst of your grief and to be confronted with people wanting something from you to have compassion is a divine miracle. It's an internal one, not one that anyone else could see. But this very human Jesus channels his sorrow and pain for his cousin, and he allows the divine love that flows through him to be the compassion that he can share with this crowd. People who are so desperate for help that they are willing to walk to a deserted place to find Jesus. With this compassion leading the way, the next miracle occurs, and Jesus does heal many in that group who were sick. He spent the whole day helping people. There were far too many sick, and so it took a very long time. Imagine that you're one of those disciples gathered that day. You see how Jesus lets his compassion lead him to caring for all the people, and you want to do the same. You want to follow your rabbi in what he teaches through his words and what he teaches through his actions. And so you try to think about how compassion can lead you to action. It's getting late in the day, and you know that these thousands of people will need to eat soon. You don't have to feed them all because there's no way you could. You could not imagine feeding the multitudes. So you come up with a practical solution. You think, well, I'll just ask Jesus to send them away, but we won't send them to the same town because they would overwhelm that town. We'll send them to multiple towns because there's no town that would have enough to feed all of these people at once. So you go to Jesus and you are sure that he is going to uh, really be proud of the compassion that you have for these hungry people and that you've come up with such a practical solution. Jesus agrees that the people need to eat. And then he throws you a curveball. He says in verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, that sounds a lot like the Jesus I know. The one who takes my practical ideas that seem completely reasonable and doable, and then he throws a curveball and says, but let's do something bigger and different than that. Because I can't do it on my own. I don't have the energy, the time, the resources. All I have is, all I have is, all I have is two fish and five loaves or whatever other inadequate offering I have for the task that Jesus has given me. But Jesus says to this disciple, bring what you have, bring it to me. And he breaks the bread, and he blesses the bread, and he gives it back to be distributed to the thousands. The idea that something can be broken in order to reach its full potential for God's kingdom, that does not make sense to me. And yet it is what we see in time and time and time again in Scripture. 
even in the death of Jesus, we see his very life broken and made whole again through the resurrection. And this is what offers us the hope that our broken selves may be made whole by Christ, fully transformed. Now, one place that Christ shows up to offer transformation from brokenness to wholeness is in the 12-step communities. There are more than 30 different recovery fellowships patterned after the original 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous. The journey begins the same way. First, a person admits powerlessness over addiction and that life is unmanageable. Second, that person embraces the belief that a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity. When a person fully acknowledges their brokenness before God and that what they have is inadequate and they seek to be made whole by God's work and not their own willpower, that is what opens a person to the transforming grace of God. Now, the 12 steps utilize the generic term higher power in order to allow people to seek healing from God even if they've shied away from organized religion. Some people seeking healing and transformation have been harmed by the church. A number of the 12-step tools in recovery are connected to spiritual disciplines and ancient Christian practices. But they've been reframed to allow people who are scared by Christianity and all that it has done over the thousands of years to come and find healing that our compassionate Christ offers us all. A big part of 12-step meetings is hearing the personal testimony of people who have been in recovery for some time and who have a word of hope to offer to others on the journey. Last year, our conference helped to provide a congregational ministry coach for us. The thinking was to prepare us for the transition from this property to a a transitional mobile church model because we thought we'd be moving men, and here we are. But at that time, they paired us with Trey Hall, who has led many church starts and who has coached many pastors leading mobile churches. He met with me and he met with our ministry team when he came to worship last January. One of the changes that we have incorporated over the last two years came from those coaching conversations with Trey. It has been to incorporate personal testimony in worship. Now we've been inviting people to share all the way back to January. We've heard from a variety of people on their different faith walks. But the key is that we are not asking people to share testimonies of how they're now perfect and God doesn't have to do anything else in their lives. Because, I mean, I can't offer that testimony, and I don't know anyone here who could. Instead, we invite people to share the incredible transformation that God has done and God is doing, and sometimes the hopes for what God will continue to transform in their lives. Our testimonies do not come from a place of achieved perfection, but they come from a place of God at work now. The first time that Trey ever encountered testimony was not in Christian worship. He writes, 
Quote, I encountered testimony in the room of a 12-step recovery community that I visited one sunny Saturday morning to do research for a sermon series on addiction. I had a lot of assumptions about substance abuse. I expected to find a fragmented collection of miserables possessed by guilt and teetering on the verge of self-destruction. But instead, I was greeted by a happy crowd of people and volunteers trying to add more cheap metal folding chairs to rows that almost touched the walls of a packed out room. I saw an open seat and squished in between a young white guy with dreadlocks and a cigarette tucked behind his ear and an octogenarian black woman touching up her lipstick and wrapped in a flawless floor-length fur coat. After a short welcome, the meeting's chairperson asked, is there anyone here who's celebrating an anniversary or counting days? And that's when the testimonies began. People scraped their chairs back on the dusty tile floor and lined up in the aisles. One by one, they moved toward the front to say phenomenally beautiful things. Yesterday, I celebrated a year of continuous sobriety. Someone almost sang into the microphone, and the crowd broke out into applause. Today, I have 25 years free from alcohol and drugs, said someone else, to cheers and whistles. Another stood up and said, today it's been two weeks and it's hard as blankety blank, and I'm just trying to make it day by day. But I'm here, two weeks. The already enthusiastically clapping intensified to standing ovation, and I started to cry. I was genuinely surprised by the tears running down my face and off my face and onto my notepad smearing the research notes I'd taken for my sermon. Why am I crying, I asked myself. But I knew somewhere deep down beneath all the calcified layers of self-deception, I knew that these testimonies of lives in the process of being saved were meant to save my life too. I managed to pull myself together for the rest of the celebrations. I'm just here for the research, I said to the fur coat woman. She looked me in the eyes, nodded her head, and called me baby as she offered a tissue to dry my face. The meeting didn't stop with the testimonies of celebration, and my tears continued as two other speakers got up to share slightly longer stories that included not only that their lives had been and were being saved, but also what they had been and were being saved from, all of the addictive, compulsive stuff that had gone down in their lives, how they had landed in a pit where they finally accepted they needed help that they could not conjure by themselves. Everything from relational misdemeanors to serious slips to colossal moral bankruptcies, people were telling the truth in detail. Interestingly, while I was crying, it seemed like everyone else in the room was laughing. It wasn't a laughter that made light of these testimonies or tried to cover their thick deceptions. It was the laughter of joyous freedom fueled by the deep knowledge that telling the truth, a miracle in itself, was the doorway to a life of miracles, end quote. 
the doorway to a life of miracles. What a beautiful description of the recovery journey. Now, it's not meant to diminish the hard work that it takes for a person to choose recovery one day at a time. It does celebrate that God can use even the smallest glimpse of freedom to lead you through transformation and into total liberation. Trey witnessed the testimonies of people, transformations that came when they admitted their brokenness and their need for healing. They sought this healing from a higher power and not their own strength. This was the same drive for healing that motivated thousands of people to walk to a solitary place to find Jesus. He had compassion on them and he healed them. God continues to have compassion on us when we show up seeking healing from the wounds of our own sins. This transformation of lives is what Methodists call the process of sanctification. God making us holy and healing our sin-sick souls. John Wesley had his own clear program of recovery from sin, including regular small group meetings to examine one's soul. He believed this was a vital part of the spiritual life and part of how God's grace works to make us holy. When I imagine God's world transformed, there are some differences in the way the world itself looks. Clean air, fresh water, no wars, no systemic oppression of any kind. But those attributes are simply the natural outgrowth of a world filled with people who have been transformed by God's healing grace. So brothers, sisters, and siblings in Christ, we are the crowds gathered together at the shore, waiting for Jesus to get off the boat and extend his compassion to us. What hurts will he heal for you? What testimony of hope will you offer to others who might be afraid to go and ask Jesus for healing? How can you invite others who are hungry and hurting to join you in the place where you found the bread of life? What testimony will you share this week with people at work, with loved ones you see every day, or the stranger you may encounter? who God places in your path and who needs us to have compassion on them, just as Jesus first had compassion on us. Jesus' compassion transforms us, and transformed people lead to a transformed world. Thanks be to God. Amen.